0: I had the great privilege of being taught in 7th grade Bible by a a truly great man. A man who had been a prisoner of war in World War II. A man who devoted his life to teaching young young men the Bible and tennis. He didn't teach me tennis. And he had this great voice. He would sometimes ask me as I got older, Will... How's Little Miss Smith doing? And that Little Miss Smith was Kathy Smith, now young blood. And he used to say this enigmatic thing to us in the 7th grade in our Bible class. This riddle. He liked riddles and puns. And I thought to honor him, it was fitting that I should do it on a day when we are introduced to this villainous fellow who was intercepted by Jesus in Acts chapter 8. And here's what John Strang, a.k.a. Bud, as we call him, or Yo, would ask, who, and I'm doing his voice, and so if you've known him, you'll say, that's not his voice. And if you haven't, you'll be like, man, that's an awesome voice. It was perfect. He would say, who was on the road to Damascus, and where was Saul going? Who was on the road to Damascus, and where was Saul going? Is your mind blown? (laughs) We were 12. But I thought, I will use this as a framework because it's fitting. As an entrance point into an exploration of what Luke is up to here when he tells us about this conversion story of this man who was on the road to Damascus. Who was on the road to Damascus? It was a fellow named Saul. And this fellow named Saul had been introduced to us just a chapter before the chapter we dealt with last week. The first Christian martyr, Stephen, faced like an angel, sterling in his character, an A-lister in God's cast. He's stoned, they throw rocks at him, to destroy him as people are gnashing their teeth and snarling like rabid dogs. And there's this cryptic little sentence at the death of Stephen. And Saul was there giving approval to his death. The first time we meet Saul, he's happily watching on at the first public lynching of a Christian. He's reintroduced here in chapter 9 this way. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. So early on, you get this picture of this is the kind of fellow that you would hope not to stand next to at a dinner party. This is the kind of guy who would have likely made an issue over everything. He would have had a great deal of passion and fervor and zeal about what should be done in Syria right now. And he'd have a lot of concerns about domestic policy and he'd have a lot of concerns about morality. And he would feel justified in them all because he was a person who was jealous for the name of God. He was jealous for the purity of God's people. He was extremely fervent in a way that would have been honored to make sure that the message of God was not being compromised. It wasn't being polluted in some way. And so it made all the sense in the world to him that he should go to the high priest, that he should do everything in his power to eradicate and to exterminate this new movement that was all based upon people following someone who was cursed by God. What? Cursed by God? Well, that's what he would have thought. He knew Deuteronomy 24. He knew that everybody who dies on a tree is cursed. He knew that there is no way on God's good earth That a man who died on the outside of the precincts of Jerusalem, between two criminals, naked, alone, ashamed, forgotten by God, could be anything other than under God's curse. He knew that. And here were people saying he got up from the dead. Here were people saying this was the Messiah, the Messiah who's supposed to usher in the rule of God. The Messiah, who was supposed to fix everything, who was supposed to stomp his enemies, he got stomped. And so Paul knew this was a sect, sect, a cult, a pollution. There was something wrong, and he, as a fervent, loyal follower of God, had to eradicate it. So he went to the high priest to get permission. To go to Damascus, which was about 135 miles. You could think not very much different from here to Nashville, although much more slowly traveled by horse, as Rembrandt envisioned, if you've ever seen that painting. There, there was a large number of Jews. He was going to gather up anybody who followed this cursed Jesus. To help extinguish this movement, to get Judaism back on track. That's who he was. He would have been the subject of an Amnesty International investigation in our time. So great was his zeal. He would have viewed people who didn't take God seriously as infidels, as problems, as God's enemies. Who was on the road to Damascus? That's who was on the road to Damascus. Saul. But also, on the road to Damascus was someone that Saul did not imagine would be on the road to Damascus. He encountered what is prevalent everywhere, but only in a most vivid way. Frederick Buechner in some place says, On the corner of every license plate on every car in our country is a date. A date that marks off how many years it's been since the birth of Christ. It is a sign both of the ubiquity of God. Ubiquity, that's an SAT word, high school students. The everywhereness, all over the placeness of God. It's a sign of the ubiquity of God and the indifference of human, humanity. We have this sign on our cars that says... Here's how many years out we are from God's invasion of earth and nobody's thinking about it. But yet God's everywhere. Well, on this road to Damascus, Saul, who was out to get the enemies of God, found out that he himself was an enemy of God. He meets up with an unexpected interceptor, an intruder. We're told, as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asks. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. He replied. The apostle doesn't, well, he becomes the apostle. Up to this point, Saul doesn't just meet up with like an iPhone flash. He's got like a personalized aurora borealis. And it blinds him. It knocks him off his horse. He falls to the ground. He has had an encounter with God. He's freaked out. What is going on here? And Jesus says, I'll tell you what's going on here. You think that you're eradicating the enemies of God. You are an enemy of God. And I'm here to stop it. I'm here to condemn Alter, change, undo my enemies, and you're one of my enemies. And here's what I'm going to do go into the city, and then you're going to find out. Now, Saul, this religiously zealot, zealous, fervent, loyal Pharisee person, meets up with this Jesus that he did not expect to encounter on the road, he didn't even expect that he was alive. He knew that he was dead. He knew he was under God's curse. And all of a sudden, he's popping out of heaven in a bright, blinding light, giving him orders to go. And so what do we learn about this Lord as we see what happens next in the story? We've known who Saul is. We've heard a little about him. What is it about this Lord? Well, the one thing you can see right off the bat is this Lord has a kind of backwards identity theft that happens. You know, an identity thief is someone who takes your identity from you for nefarious purposes. They try to profit off of getting your identity. They steal your credit card. They act as if they are you. And Jesus does this kind of backwards identity theft situation where he has somehow inexplicably... Decided that people, riffraff, people who are getting destroyed and being held in contempt, he's decided that they can have his identity and he'll take theirs. And so when something bad happens to them, when they are being persecuted, when they are being stoned and flogged and beaten and held in contempt, he takes it awfully personally because it's as if it's happening to him. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. The apostle could have said, now, wait a second. Of course, you never do this. If you get hit up by a blinding light, my guess is you will not do any arguing. He could have said, I have I've never, even, I've never even seen you. How could I be persecuting you? The implication here, when he says, why do you persecute me? I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. Is when you go after my people, you go after me because my identity is theirs and theirs is mine. If you get a hold of that, you're on to something that's going to make your life different. Well, as you move on, you notice something else about this Lord. Not only that he does this kind of backwards identity theftery, thievery, but he likes to delegate. What? Look at this. So he sends him into the city. The men who were traveling with him, they stood speechless. They heard a sound, but they didn't see anyone. Saul gets up. He needs to be helped along because he can't see no more. For three days, he's blind. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. And the Lord calls to Ananias. He gets another character in in on the scene. And Ananias, as you should do if you ever hear someone audibly call your name while you're at prayer, Jimmy, yes, Lord, do that. Say, yes, Lord, that's what you're supposed to do. And the Lord tells him, go to the house of Judas. Well, here's Judas, some guy named Judas who lives on Straight Street, which is a very particular address. Jesus knows your address. Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man named Tarsus, from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. So Saul's at prayer, and Ananias is at prayer, and Saul's at prayer at Judas's house on Straight Street, wherever that is. Google Maps can show you. In a vision, he's seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. I just want you to see something here. God is getting all these different characters involved in the story because this is his way. He's been reading the leadership material. He understands that wise business practices means you can't take on too much for yourself. You have to delegate to others. No. But that is, it seems, how he likes to work things. And so he tells Ananias, when Ananias protests, Hey, I've heard about this guy. He's a bad apple. He's a member of the Taliban. He wants to terrorize your enemies. What do you talk? Why am I going to go talk to him? He's going to bomb me. And Jesus says to him, go, this man is my chosen instrument. Listen to that word, instrument. God likes to use instrumentality. He's my chosen instrument to carry my name before Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. So I just want you to see for a minute, as you look at this conversion story, that the Lord loves to delegate. C.S. Lewis said it this way, it seems as if there's nothing He won't hand off if he can. He can do everything all at once. You don't think Jesus and the establishment of his kingdom couldn't just show up to everybody in this room and everybody on this planet and everybody who has sophisticated doubts about who he is and says, well, I don't know. How can you actually prove that Jesus was raised from the dead? Aren't these a bunch of religious propaganda? And Jesus just shows up with blinding light and walks off. You think people would have doubts then? He could just instantly convert everybody if he wanted right now. But he's giving them a chance. You see, I don't know how, I don't know why he works it this way, but this is his method. So Paul is chosen to be the one who carries his name, an instrument in God's hands. Well, that's, that's important to see. If you believe that the Lord delegates and that Paul has really been chosen to be his instrument, it helps you understand why Luke tells the story three times in the book of Acts. Do you know? He has Paul tell the story twice. He tells the story once. And then over and over again, in the two-thirds of the New Testament, that the apostle Paul, who formerly named Saul, he gets his name changed a few chapters later. So I'll get confused throughout the time. If I say Saul, I mean Paul. If I say Paul, I mean Saul. Same dude. He's constantly appealing to the fact that he met Jesus, that he was a witness, even though abnormally born witness to the resurrection, that the message that he proclaims is not something that came to him one night when he was smoking his pipe and having a little bit of scotch. He was sipping and puffing and suddenly he thought, I've got it. No, he was going the entire opposite direction and Jesus came to him and revealed himself. We are a religion that believes in revelation, knowledge as gift. The most important things in the world are not things you figure out for yourself. They're things that are revealed to you. Which takes a great deal of humility to receive. So Paul is always appealing to this throughout the New Testament. And if you believe that God likes to delegate... It helps you understand because some of you say, man, I would really be able to believe it if Jesus would show up to me like this. But the way God's worked it out is he's shown up to one man or to all these apostles and he's given them a message. And he said, believe this, frame your life according to this reality that we're telling you about. Look at our lives and how we're willing to suffer so that you can know these things because we think they're too true to be hidden. As Hutch mentioned earlier, we can't not tell you this stuff. And you can say, you guys are nuts. Or you can say, maybe they're true. If the Lord really does like to delegate, and not only does he chosen Paul to be an instrument, but he also gets these other players involved, like Ananias and Judas. It helps you realize this too. When it comes to looking at your life, you're really not the craftsman of it. You're more like a chisel in the craftsman's hand. That's an important aspect of thinking through most of the unsavory parts of your life, most of the disaffectedness, most of the disappointment that you know, isn't it, when you think of it? Because you... Have an idea in your head about what your life should be like? What your work should be like? What your husband should be like? Every wife knows exactly what their husband should be like. What your roommate should be like? What your students should be like? How people should respond to you and treat you? And one of the most aggravating realizations that comes upon us from time to time, and we're slow learners, is that doggone it, if nobody else seems to share our vision of what reality should be. And so we're always getting disappointed. Things are never working out the way we want them to. Try to make a marriage where your goal is to convert your spouse into your aspiration for your spouse. I think most spouses respond very well to that. I hear about them in counseling classes, uh, sessions. I hear husbands saying, it's so wonderful. My wife knows exactly how I should be, and she tells me how I do not measure up every single second of the day. It makes me feel so good about myself. Of course, it goes the other way. And your work, of course, would be so much more satisfying if it could pan out the way you want it to. But what if, to use Gordon McDonald's suggestion, we're not the, George McDonald, Gordon, we're not the, we're not the one framing life. We're the ones being used to frame it. We're instruments in God's hand. Well, boy, it's a lot more freeing when you start to think of it that way. When you start to think, hey, maybe I have value here where I'm working even in this menial job that I'm doing. Maybe I have value here on this team where I'm not contributing the way I think I ought to. They haven't yet realized how magnificent I am. Maybe in this marriage or in this roommate situation, I have something to contribute because God is working through me. He likes to delegate. I'm a chisel though, not the architect, not the craftsman. And if God really does like to delegate, like I'm saying, and he's chosen Paul to be his instrument. He's engrafted ananias into the story why i don't know it's worth thinking of this too what luther said about our daily work luther liked to say this when we pray each morning give us this day our daily bread the bakers have already been up since five baking bread And for the bread to get to us, of course, not in his day, this didn't happen, but the bread had to be baked and then somebody had to wrap it and then some dude had to drive it and then somebody had to check us out at the grocery store. For us to get our daily bread, and he used this expression that we are in our daily work as instruments of God's care, as participants in his mission to care for and renovate the earth, we're agents of his providence. That's a fancy word, but providence is a theological term that means the way that God governs and provides for all of his creatures and all of their actions all of the time. And so when you want coffee in the morning, you don't say, Oh, dear Lord God, Jehovah, please bring down Colombian coffee. You go buy it. And then hopefully you give thanks to God for it as you're snobbly, drinking your $12 a pound coffee. No, nobody here does that. It comes to you secondhand. He uses instrumentation. We're agents of, prov- of providence. That's why, that's why Paul later could say this when he was discouraged. He could say, But God who comforts the downcast comforted me by the sending of Titus. He recognized that God's hand in bringing him consolation was He gave him a person who brought him consolation. Think of how many opportunities you have throughout your day and your daily work to be a carrier of God's name as an instrument of His care for wherever you've been placed as an agent of His providence. A few years back, I was working at a life insurance company, my first job out of college. And I was on a team called the New York team. And that's how you said it, and you did your shoulders. And on the New York team, I had the profound privilege of being introduced to a bevy of vocabulary from a man that we'll call Lawrence, because that's his name, that I had never heard grown people speak except in movies. Lawrence, if he had been on network TV, did this to me one day in my early career. I was talking to Lawrence in New York, and he said, Eric. And it just kept going. I've never heard such a a collage of cussing. (laughs) Such creativity and inventiveness at making sure I knew that when I hung up the phone, I should go ahead and off myself. I was a worthless person. I hadn't even done anything. I just happened to be the guy on the phone. But Lawrence was very peeved. And he had the vocabulary to prove it. And I thought, oh, my, I guess people in real life do talk like this in working hours because I had never experienced it before. But, you know, to give a charitable rendering of Lawrence's concern, he was dealing with life insurance. He was really being concerned about widows. That's why he was so mad. The policy was getting messed up. Life insurance, even that is a care for people who are left behind after a death. Lawrence was cussing me because he was fervently concerned for widows. That's it. That's how I'm going to charitably view Lawrence all my days. And Suez Lewis, taking up this theme, said one day, "I was about to visit London, and so I was going to get my hair cut in anticipation of this visit. My trip got canceled to London, so I decided not to get the haircut. But unaccountably, there was a little nagging in my mind, almost like a voice saying get it cut all the same. It was probably a British voice, not mine. Get it cut. And he said, in the end, I could stand it no longer. So I went. Now, my barber was a fellow who had many troubles and a fellow whom my brother and I had been able to help on numerous occasions. And when I opened up the door, the barber said, oh, good, it's you. I had prayed that you would come. You know, C.S. Lewis was smart, right? At Oxford and Cambridge. He said, I stood in awe of that and I stand in awe of it still. These players in the game, Ananias is visited by God as he's seeking God in prayer, Paul is getting a vision from God as he's praying to him. When you start to realize that you've been placed as a carrier of God's name, as an instrument of his providence, of his care, and all the different kinds of things you do, As a teacher, as a construction person, as a student, as an athlete, as a mother at home, at the hospital, at the bank. Whatever it is that you happen to do, you realize I'm an agent of care here and as you seek the Lord to be used as an instrument. It's uncanny the kinds of things that can be done. Because anywhere God loves, He's going to put His people there. And wherever you go, is some place that He loves. We've seen who was on the road to Damascus. It was this Saul, this religious zealot. And who was also there, this Lord that He didn't expect to find. This Lord who wants people to know Him. This Lord who delegates His authority and His actions in stunning ways. Where was Saul going? That's the end of the riddle. Where was Saul going? He still was going to Damascus, but he was going as a different kind of person altogether. He was going in a much different way now, not to promote his own zeal, but as a carrier of a name. Go, go, The Lord said to Ananias, This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles, their kings, and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. One of the hardest things about our daily life, I think, is that we're constantly without even thinking about it, trying to promote our own honor. You realize this is the thing that makes you feel depressed when you've had an internet session and you've been looking on other people's Facebook pages or you've been reading other blogs and you feel like an extra fat loser afterwards? Why is everyone else so extra more cool than I am? They just are. Sorry. Sorry. It's the thing that makes you want to self-curate. It's the thing that makes you so frustrated when you don't get recognized at work or when you have to do something that's behind the scenes that involves sacrifice and no one is applauding. We're people by nature who like to promote our own name. This is the the error of the people at Babel when they built a tower to the sky to let it reach to heaven. And we'll make a name for ourselves. Of course, we all want to make a name for ourselves. But boy, if you start to realize that what has happened, what happened to the Apostle Paul, his scales fell off his eyes. He began to see. He got conscripted into Jesus' earth reclamation project. He was baptized. And immediately, he was in Damascus in a new way. Not to eliminate the faith, but to embolden it. Not to eradicate it, but to build it up. He had a different name placed on him. He was all of a sudden acting not in his name. And what a freedom it is if you start to realize the dynamic that he gives to people in Colossians, for instance, when he says, so whatever you do, this man who is to carry Jesus's name to the world. He tells the folks at Colossae, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus. Act in his stead. Act as if it's his cause you're trying to promote. Do you know how freeing it is when you start to realize you have a way to manage yourself and to fight against your own tendencies that are crippling you? You get to say, hey, these situations where I'm afraid I'm going to look like a fool. Oh, Jesus wait a second, wait a second, here I am again thinking that it's up to me to promote my name. Let me forget about me and promote yours. Oh Lord, in my business, let me promote your name in the way we carry out our business and our creativity and our ingenuity and our integrity and the goodness of the products that we bring to the market and our family dynamics. Let us not promote our name, let us promote your name. That's what we do when we baptize you. You're initiated into the Christian community. Paul was baptized at the, at the beginning of his Christian life, baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit because it becomes a banner. You live your life, you spend your moments, the possession of another. God is this engraver who has engraved his signature of ownership on us. And said, now you carry my name into all the places you go. You know what's also cool about that is, As a community, it helps us not to judge each other when people are carrying the name in different ways. Everybody gets their own pet projects, their own hobby horses, their own points of passion in the Christian life. And you can pursue those without condemning the people around you who don't have the same one because we're all carrying the name. Carry the name into your Christian school, into your public school, into your home school. Carry the name. In your family life, carry the name. In your business life. He still went to Damascus, but he went carrying a different kind of name. Who was on the road to Damascus? This Saul, but also this Jesus who's always on every road you're on too. This Jesus who wants people to know him. This Jesus who delegates and privileges us by participating in his worldwide mission. Where was he going? He was going to Damascus still, but he's going as a different kind of person, not promoting himself, being a promoter of the name of this Savior who had etched his concerns in Paul. Paul had this experience at the end of his life that we get to hear about he's one of the few guys that we we see the worst about him broadcast I don't know if you ever think about that if all the worst things about you got put in a holy book that millions and millions of religious people would talk about for the rest of your life we see that stuff we see him converted but we also get to see him when he knows he's about to die and he's looking at his life And he says something like this when he's writing to Timothy, a son in the faith. He says, I I can't believe it. I can't believe that I got to do this. That Jesus picked me. Because I was once violent, angry, a blasphemer. I can't believe that he picked me that I would get to be the person who takes his name to the world see he was thoroughly unimpressed with himself in a way he wouldn't have been pre-conversion I was talking to a friend the other day who said in the middle of a horrible horrible bit of hurt said I have no judgment here because I am so unimpressed with my own heart and I thought as he said it that's about the most Christian thing I could ever hear anybody say I'm so unimpressed with my own heart. But you know what happened to the Apostle Paul? Is he realized, as he was so unimpressed with his own heart, he says this. It's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance that Christ came to the world to save people who are unimpressed with their own hearts. Sinners. And he did this that he might... He did this even for people like me, the chief of sinners. That's how he describes himself. So that he might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe. Yesterday, the young blood boys cheered on by the young blood woman became the first Champions of the Fairland PTO Wiffle Ball Tournament. Just let that sink in for a second. (laughs) I mean, we won the thing. I I killed one four-year-old kid accidentally, but we had to win. (laughs) And at the end of the tournament, at the end of when we were doing our victory dance... The kids were given trophies. The adults, just a backache. The kids, though, Kayler and Ander got their champion's trophy. And what was this extra special honor about this thing is as soon as they were handed these trophies, you've gotten a trophy before, these trophies with their little white faux marble base and their little connector with a sheen of red around it and a wiffle ball anchored on the top. As soon as it was handed to them, the freaking things fell apart. (laughs) And I thought, that's about right. (laughs) And I was thinking about trophies, and I was thinking about that this morning as I knocked one of their broken trophies off the table and made it even more broken. (laughs) Sorry. I was thinking, you know, trophies are things that kids love to uh, accumulate. They say, I did something. Look what I did. And it makes me think, you know, these are cheap little trophies we got for a very dubious accomplishment. Well, it was pretty awesome, really, if you had seen us. (laughs) But the Apostle Paul, when he looked at his life, unimpressed as he was with himself, by his end, he couldn't help but be extremely impressed with this Savior who said, you know what I'm going to do, Paul? I'm going to make you a trophy. I'm going to make you a trophy so that wherever you go and you carry my name, people will say, my word, how patient is Jesus. That's going to be your message to the world, the unlimited patience of Jesus. You get to be unimpressed with yourself and get to be totally impressed with this Savior who let the wickedness of your identity fall on Him and the splendor of His fall on you. And what God wants, God wants by the end, He wants a trophy room full of little trophies of grace that don't fall apart, that are inscribed to say, look what God did. He brought in all of you. He brought in the people in India and the people in Trenton. He brought in the people... In Russia, in the British Isles, and all around the world, people who are unimpressed with themselves, who are all corporately together, impressed with the Savior who's etched his name on them and said, look at this trophy room, these trophies of my grace.